ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to this, the latest instalment in our Euro Crisis at LSE public lecture series. I'm uh, Damien Chalmers uh, from the Law Department and the European Institute here at LSE. Uh, I only have two jobs at this stage in the evening. The first is the rather uh, irritating and officious one of, please, of asking you please to turn off your mobile phones. The second, which will take uh, a little bit longer, is to in uh, introduce our speaker for tonight, Professor Simon Hicks. And actually, it's, uh, I have to say, when I thought about this, it was quite moving. I suddenly realised that the first time I'd met Simon was 16 years ago, and I thought I'd better find out what he'd done since then. And it was quite a lot, as it turned out. Uh, Simon, as you can see from the slide, is, one, is a fellow of the British Academy. What is not said is he's one of the youngest members of the Fellow of the British Academy. He's also head of the government department here at LSE, as well as an excellent colleague. He's been visiting professor at virtually every American university that I can see on the West Coast, San Diego, Berkeley, Stanford, as well as Sciences Po and Hertie. He's well-known, he's one of the most well-known writers on the political science of the European Union, with over, well over 100 publications and six books. A central theme of his writing, which was alluded to in our talk yesterday, was this belief that the EU is politicised and can be politicised even more, and that it should be looked along standard left-right dimensions and that electoral contestation should really be at its very heart, be it for presidential politics or parliamentary politics. So it's, it's really very interesting to see, given this sort of bleak moment how we can re-inject re uh, these elements of contestation into the current emerging settlement within the European Union. Someone's going to speak for about 45 minutes and then there'll be time for questions. So uh, I hope you'll want, join me with welcoming Simon to the stage to talk about democratising a macroeconomic union in Europe. Simon, thank you very much. Thanks, uh, Damien. I thought the... Uh the, the job of the compare is to set the bar low so I can get above it. So I'm, I'm worried now that you set it too high for me to beat. So um, here's what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about why, why, as a political scientist, why we think we need uh, democracy, just a few words, and why I think this is relevant for um, the current process of deeper economic integration in Europe, and then I'll say a little bit about how I see the EU's response to the Eurozone crisis. I won't say a lot about my interpretation of the crisis. I assume that's been covered a lot so far. So I'll assume that that's been done. We can get that in Q&A if you want. And I'll, I will try and argue that what I think we're witnessing is the transformation of the EU from what, what has been so far a microeconomic union into what I call or think of as a macroeconomic union. I'll explain what that means. But where's the politics? The politics is missing in this process, and I'll talk about why I think it's missing right now and why um, I think it's a bad thing. And I'll say a few things as an aside about the, the status of the UK and um, what I think about what Cameron has now, what, what Cameron said in his speech and the prospects for a British referendum on Britain's relationship with the rest of the EU. And I'll finish with four scenarios that are sort of Partly tongue-in-cheek, but we'll get to that. Why democracy? Well, 
as a kind of as a particular sort of comparative political scientist, um, I've got a particular take on what I think about the democratic process um, and how this relates to policy outcomes. So increasingly in democracies, what we are doing is we're handing over lots of power to independent institutions or non-democratic institutions like central banks or courts or the European Commission or competition regulators and so on. And, and normally the justification for this is that we want to lock away from democratic politics those types of policy issues where we, are, we assume that, that we want to lock in the long-term interests of the public as a whole. Because if you give it to politicians, what they're going to do in the democratic process is the majority will govern and they will produce policy outcomes in the interests of that majority and against the interests of the minority. So you'll end up with winners and losers. And so if you want policy that doesn't create winners and losers, policy that generally creates a bigger cake or is in governing the interests of everybody, you want to lock that away from democratic politics. And that was the standard justification for the single market. You delegate powers up to the European level to, to create a market in Europe on a continental scale. We had broad consensus from left to right of building that market, delegated huge powers to the European Commission and isolated the EU institutions from the processes of democratic politics. On the assumption that if, if you had more open democratic politics in that period of building the single market, what you would have got is you would have got a, a particular design for that single market that was skewed in one direction or another. So you would have got either a single market with very high regulatory standards in the interests of, let's say, uh, a group in society that was in favour of environmental standards or social standards, or you would have got, with a centre-right majority, you would have got a very liberal single market without social regulation. So by, by delegating the design of this market to institutions isolated from politics, we got a sort of enlightened design for this single market. Contrast that with a different type of politics, where... The outcome of politics is redistributive in a sense that you end up with winners and losers. And these can be winners and losers just in terms of some people get richer, some people get poorer, but they can also be winners and losers in terms of people who have conflicting policy interests or policy preferences. And what you're doing in politics is you're picking one group of people's preferences against another. So, for example, some people would like in high environment standards, other people would like low environment standards, and if you produce any policy outcome, you've got one set of winners and one set of losers, unless you try and split the difference. And what I see as happening in the EU now is a growth of policy outcomes that are redistributive, where we can identify clear winners and losers, and I'll talk a bit about how I think that the processes of deeper economic integration in the Eurozone um, is leading to clear, clearly identifiable winners and losers both across states and within states. And it's when you have policy outcomes that lead to winners and losers that you need democracy. Because democracy is about a system of government that provides a mandate from, for these redistributive outcomes, what political scientists call loser's consent. So what's remarkable about the democratic process is people who lose in elections don't go out on the streets and protest. Why? It's because they say, we'll get you next time. They say, we lost this one. You guys govern. We know you're going to govern against us. We know you're going to change the tax system or the public spending system or produce policy outcomes against our interests, and so we're going to lose. But the democratic process has given a legitimacy to those outcomes on the knowledge that next time round, the losers this time round will be winners potentially next time round. And that's how democratic politics works. 
So if you have redistributive outcomes, you need democracy, you need democratic politics to be able to legitimise those, those redistributive policy outcomes. And that's where we are right now. So why do I think we're, we're seeing the emergence of a macroeconomic union? So I call it a macroeconomic union because deliberately to contrast it with the single market, which essentially is a microeconomic union. It's a market being created on a continental scale um, that involves two things. It involves um, removal of barriers to the free movement of goods, services, capital, and labor, so deregulation. And it involves re-regulation, product standards, common um, minimum social standards, common environment standards, and so on. But these are essentially microeconomic issues about regulating goods, services, and capital and labor in a market. What is happening now is something completely different. What is happening, in a sense, is the building of a set of policy instruments that relate to macroeconomic policy, whether that's monetary policy and fiscal policies and influence and power over the kind of policy economic expenditure preferences that publics across Europe have. So that, in a sense, what is being built now is a macroeconomic union, quite different from the microeconomic union. If we look across the Atlantic, we can say that this is what happened in the US in the 1930s. So up to the 1930s, the US federal government was largely a microeconomic union. It, was, it regulated the market on the continental scale in the US, largely through the interstate commerce clause. And it wasn't until the New Deal that you ended up with a US federal macroeconomic union with large federal public expenditure programs and a federal budget. And that is where we're heading in the EU. So in terms of what the Eurozone has done, I see three pillars to what the, what the Eurozone has currently done in response to um, the Eurozone crisis. So the first thing is the emergence of a series of liquidity funds. You can think of this as some sort of Euro treasury. So this is the what is the main element of this is the European stability mechanism. And the European stability mechanism is a series of short-term transfers from creditor states to debtor states. So these are short-term transfers from taxpayers in Germany, the Netherlands, Finland, Slovakia to the citizens of Greece, Italy, Portugal, and so on. Um, these are just loans. This is not quite the same. I'll put the EU Treasury here in inverted commas because it's not really the same as a, a Treasury like the US Federal Treasury where, this is ta where the citizens across the Union are being taxed. This is going into a central federal budget and money is being spent out of this budget. These are loans. These are loans from national treasuries through a, a, a sort of Eurozone type of international monetary fund mechanism where these loans will be paid back. But these are huge. what is happening through these loans is you're subsidizing the public expenditure of the uh, debtor states. And so these are citizens subsidizing this public expenditure with some promise that they will be paid back at some point in the future. In return for these loans, the second element is the second side of the pillar, are constraints on the debtors. And the reason why you would want these constraints, this classic idea, is if, is if you're just going to be loaning people money as a result of, of currency crises... So Greece runs up huge public debt. It can't afford to service its debt in international currency markets. Therefore, you know, you say, Greece, just, we need to bail you out, so we're going to lend you some money. There's a moral hazard problem because, you know, Greece says, oh, we promised we're going to be good, and then th there's another crisis. Can we have some more money? So how do you overcome that moral hazard problem? And so the second pillar of the emerging development are the constraints on those debtors. So it's kind of quid pro quo. And here, 
Part of these are the austerity agreements that are attached to these loans. So the loans go out to states and there's a package deal that gets done that specifies exactly the austerity that needs to be implemented as part of these loans to constrain public spending. Turn your phone off. Um, and the second element is this fiscal compact treaty. The fiscal compact treaty is a treaty signed by 25 and 27 EU member states um, that commits all of the states of the Union to balanced budgets. And the idea here is that if you can commit constitutionally or quasi-constitutionally to a balanced budget, you're much less likely to run up large public debts, you're much less likely to get into these kind of debt uh, public sovereign debt crises, and so you're less likely to need loans in the future. And the third element is a series of rules to try and coordinate wide areas of public spending relating to education policy, pensions policy, and so on. And the way to understand this, there was a lovely letter in the FT about a year ago by a, a Finnish person who, uh, the Financial Times had just covered the Finnish elections and a very anti-European party, the True Finns had done very well in the election and the, the FT editorial had written a, um, a very anti-Finnish editorial statement saying this is outrageous that the Finns are voting for this party and a Finnish, some Finnish person wrote to the FT the next day and said I didn't vote for the True Finns but in Finland we're being asked to bail out the Greeks I don't mind bailing out the Greeks but we have um, the highest uh, marginal tax rate in the EU and the Greece, Greek marginal tax rate is 20% below us. We have the highest retirement age in the EU and the Greek retirement age is about 15 years below our retirement age in the public sector. Um, and I'm willing to start bailing out the Greeks if they have high, you know, similar levels of taxation and similar retirement ages to us. So you can see how, you know, the kind of logic that goes in and you try and play this in Slovakia, where Slovakia... Um, has, actually has a GDP per capita lower than the GDP per capita of Greece, and you can see the kind of political tensions that get asking Slovak taxpayers to lend money to Greeks to bail out Greece. Um, and, and so in return, they want constraints and they want reforms to a whole range of public policies. So how do you enforce reforms? You try and introduce coordination of what each member state is doing in a whole range of areas. They call this the Euro Plus Pact, where there will now be common procedures for trying to coordinate what every member state in the Eurozone is doing in a whole swathe of areas of macroeconomic policy, uh, pensions policies, unemployment policies, retirement policies, and so on. The redistributional consequences of these austerity measures, however, and the redistributional consequences of these enforced policy changes from Brussels are felt largely within those states that are the, the debtor states. And I'm going to show you that in a second. In fact, I'll show you that now. Um, this is data from Eurobarometer from November 2011, the latest data that's available. Um, and this shows attitudes towards Europe. So attitude, do you the percentage of citizens in these polls who trust the EU. And I've divided the data up to under 40s and over 40s. So traditionally in Eurobarometer data, people under 40 are much more trusting of the EU institutions than people over 40. I guess you and me and Damien, we've, we've crossed the Rubicon now. Um, so... Traditionally, traditionally, you get that picture, Finland, France, Germany, the Netherlands. So you, you get a kind of, traditionally, it's under 40 is more pro-EU than over 40 is France is interesting there. 
these are, the, these are the states having to impose austerity, and austerity being imposed from Brussels. What is going on here is something we've never seen before in Europe, where we've got over-40s now being more pro-EU than under-40s. Why is that? Well, it's the over-40s that have assets. These assets are denominated in euros. They own houses, they have pensions, they have businesses, they have cars, they're denominated in euros. They have an interest in maintaining the value of these assets denominated in euros. The under-40s are largely unemployed. Over 50% unemployment amongst under-35s in Spain, rising unemployment amongst under-35s in Portugal, Italy and Greece. They don't have any assets. Screw the EU, let's leave the euro, uh, and then suddenly our labour becomes competitive and people might start investing in us. And we don't have any assets, so we really don't care that the value of our currency will collapse. We've never seen these intergenerational conflicts so stark in any countries in Europe, and, and you can really see this in voting behaviour and a whole range of things. And that's really re direct redistributional consequences of what is happening right now. Winners of these austerity programmes and winners of the bailouts are largely the older generations that own assets, and losers are the younger generations who don't. The final big change um, is the new role for the European Central Bank. So the European Central Bank was originally set up as this independent institution that would just set interest rates for the Eurozone. It's now emerging into something really quite different. It's emerging into now what we think of as a lender of last resort, being able to lend money to buy out, uh, to lend money firstly to national banks to buy up government debts and now with the possibility actually of buying up government debts directly itself. And with the emerging banking union, the European Central Bank will take on the role as a bank regulator. You might think that's not very political, um, but I was asked to come and give a talk at ECB a few weeks ago and they were very worried about the banking union from a legitimacy point of view. And they were, sat, they were asking me and a few others to come in as political scientists, oh, why would the bank ask the political scientists to come talk to them? And they said, you need to tell us how we can be legitimate when we, in a banking union, withdraw a banking licence to a national bank because they haven't got sufficient liquidity. I said, well, don't ask me. I, you know, they said, what happens when, okay, we have a bank, if it's a national regulator doing it, the national regulator will go on the media and explain why this is being done, and there'll be some political co competition and political side payment that gets done to solve the problem. We're going to be sitting in Frankfurt, and we're going to say, no, bank so-and-so in Ireland, you no longer have enough liquidity, you haven't met the rules of the banking union, you can no longer trade as a bank. Can you imagine what the consequences of that will be politically um, in, a, in any of the member states of the EU. It's not the same as saying, um, you know, the, Europe, the European Court of Justice making a ruling against a member state um, because to, provide, to allow access to a market of a product that previously wasn't allowed access to a market, which is primarily what the ECJ is doing. This would be something much more significant by an independent, non-accountable, non-directly elected, non-political institution in Frankfurt. So, the e having got this sort of first step of the process together, Van Rompuy, the president of the European Council, I like to call him the chairman of the European Council, the word président in France means chairman, the chairman of the European Council was asked to um, come up with a plan for taking uh, this economic monetary union process forward. And the interesting thing is the plan he called a genuine economic and monetary union 
and he called it a three-stage plan for a genuine economic and monetary union. So if you're my generation or older, you'll read this as a, as a slap in the face to Delors, because Delors had a three-stage plan for economic and monetary union, and he's saying, no, this is a genuine plan. For and this is a kind of recognition that Delors' plan was incomplete. So you've got to read this as saying the original plan for economic and monetary union allowed us to set up a single currency, but didn't set up all the other stuff we need to actually govern um, the single currency, and this is what we need to really govern a single currency. So stage one of the plan is now already in place, as I've described it. Stage two, we're getting there with the banking union and these national budgetary contracts where, where this is going to be scrutinising the national budgetary cycles where national budgets of the Eurozone member states are going to be collectively scrutinised in Brussels. Stage three is interesting. Stage three of the plan would, and he talks about, a new Eurozone fiscal capacity. This would really be an EU treasury. What he would like is, uh, what the, the, that he recognises that this is incomplete, there would need to be genuine EU fiscal capacity, something like 3 to 5% of EU GDP. And he argues there would need to be much stronger common rules and common policies governing national budgets, taxes, employment and pensions. This is something fundamentally different to the current design of the EU, where these things are really largely left to the member states. What Brussels does is regulate the continental scale market. I've talked about that. Talked about that. Where's the politics in all this? Well, the idea in the plan, as it's currently set out, is that they're going to rely very heavily on the national parliaments and the European Parliament. The European Parliament will play a role as a scrutinising the European Central Bank via the Monetary, Committee, Europe, Monetary Affairs Committee in the European Parliament. will be able to call um, the uh, governor of the European Central Bank to its committee to give evidence, modelled on the sort of Senate hearings in the US. The European Parliament and national parliaments will scrutinise these national budgetary plans and make sure they adhere to these common European rules. Um, there'll be the fiscal treaty that has been signed by, signed by the 25 member states. They hope at some point will be integrated into the EU architecture, so the European Parliament will play a role scrutinising whether or not the member states have implemented a balanced budget. There's nothing else in there, really. There's no discussion of, of more open democratic processes, for example, some form of election of the Commission, what was interesting was in November of 2012 at the CDU Congress, in, so the governing party of Germany at its party congress, passed a resolution calling for a directly elected European president. And this was a recognition of the fact that um, if you're going to take these major steps towards deeper political and economic integration in Europe, you need to find some way to legitimise these outcomes. And if the major party in Germany makes this kind of argument, this is clearly going to remain on the cards. The other thing that was discussed, and the European Central Bank was actually in favour, was merging the office of the Commission President and the European Council President. Because they said, we as bankers don't want to be responsible for all of this stuff. We need politicians to take the flak. And it's no good for there to be too many politicians so they can all blame each other. There's no good having the European Council President say, don't blame me, blame the Commission. And the Commission saying, don't blame me, blame Van Rompuy. Um, and so they said, actually, it would be much better if there was a single fused office of the European Council President, who chairs the European Council, and the office of the Commission President. Then you'd have one figurehead in Brussels 
One person who could ha would have a strategic interest to think about the long-term interests of the EU and would have joined up thinking between negotiating amongst the governments and also thinking about the legislative process of the EU and what legislative instruments need to be in place, which is now the role of the Commission. Um, there's no discussion at all about how a supposed new EU fiscal capacity would be accountable. So the EU would have new tax-raising powers. Um, how would these tax rate, who would have exercise over these tax-raising powers? Who would set the agenda for how you would spend these, this new money and so on? So, so we, we don't have uh, much detail on that. The worrying thing for me, though, is I don't really trust the national parliaments and... It's, uh, you know, I don't really trust the European Parliament either, Damien. <laughs> Chatham House rules. <laughs> Here's why I don't trust national parliaments. This is data from a book by uh, During on um, national parliaments and national governments. And so here you've got a bunch of West European countries, and these are the different powers of national parliaments versus national governments. So... So one means it's weak against the government and seven means it's very strong. And here's a series of issues here. Who gets to set the agenda of the parliament? Who gets to set the budgetary agenda? How powerful are the committees? Who has control over the timetable? Is it possible to guillotine, i.e. stop a debate going on? And, and there's, a bunch, there's about 20 of these different indices. And then from these, he creates what he calls an executive dominance index um, that goes from minus one to plus one. Plus one means um, the executive completely dominates the parliament. Minus one means the parliament is more powerful against the executive. So the idea that we could give national parliaments power and that we, we have this kind of romantic view that these national parliaments are the vestige of national democracy is just nonsense. National parliaments are purely just talking shops railroaded by national governments. Um, it was Austin Mitchell... British MP who once described his career in the House of Commons as throwing paper aeroplanes at a bulldozer. So, the, these, so you can see this. So UK, Ireland, France, Greece, Spain. In fact, the big predictor of whether you have a weak parliament or not is whether you have single-party majority government. Countries that tend to have single-party majority government, i.e. Britain, Ireland, Spain, Greece have really weak parliaments because you have a majority, the party comes to power with a majority and says, let's change the rules of procedure so the parliament has no power so we can just railroad it. Where you have minority coalition governments, the parliament sets its own rules of procedure, the government doesn't like it and the parliament says, no, no, we have a majority that you don't govern, we'll set our rules of procedure that give us power. So you can see how this huge variance in how much you can really trust national parliaments to scrutinise these sort of austerity measures, to scrutinise payments into the European stability mechanism, and to rely on national parliaments as the vehicle via which these transfers between states, via which these package deals within states, can be legitimised. These are essentially an intergovernmental bargain done by member states at the European level that will be just railroaded through their national parliaments except in the Netherlands. Can we rely on the European Parliament? I'm a big fan of the European Parliament, as some of you might know. Um, I like the MEPs. On average, they're, they're far more educated than the average national MP, far more articulate, um, spend far more time actually doing their work as a parliamentarian uh, rather than lobbying local government. Um, and actually are... Uh, 
increasingly very political and partisan in what they do inside the European Parliament. So coalitions in the European Parliament increasingly are on left-right lines, and these coalitions shift issue by issue. So you can see here, this is data from VoteWatch, which is a website that tracks voting in the European Parliament, and this shows the type of coalitions that form by policy area. And so the purple here is this grand coalition between the three major political groups, the EPP on the centre-right, socialists on the centre-left, and the liberals in the middle. Um, the gold here is when you have the two big EPP and the socialists together voting against the liberals. The blue is where you get a centre-right majority, and the red is the frequency of a centre-left majority. So on average, you can see, you know, a lot of votes in the parliament are... Um, should we debate this tomorrow kind of votes, you know, setting the procedure, procedural issues. Quite a few votes are technical things where there's large majorities. But you can see how, on average now, in most policy areas, you're getting more than 50% of votes splitting along ideological lines. And you can see how over on environment policy over here, you tend to get centre-left majorities forming between the Liberals and the Socialists. On economic and monetary affairs issues, you get centre-right majorities forming. So you get these shifting coalitions, centre-right majorities on some issues, centre-left majorities on other issues. Ideological politics. One nice example of this is economic and monetary union issues. So votes in the European Parliament on issues related to economic and monetary union. Here, this is, uh, there's been 277 votes so far on these issues since um, July 2009. And um, this is the frequency that the Liberals in the middle of the Parliament voted with the other groups in the Parliament. 92% of the time, the Liberals voted with centre-right European People's Party. That's the German Christian Democrats and co. Together, the EPP and the Liberals form a majority in the European Parliament on these issues. A very robust centre-right majority. In fact, the Liberals in the middle of the Parliament are on the winning side more than any other group in the Parliament because they can vote form a coalition to the left, form a coalition to the right. There's no inbuilt governing majority. And in fact, you might say a positive spin on this would be, on average in the European Parliament, policy outcomes tend to be close to some notional European-wide voter. Outcomes from the European Parliament tend to be kind of relatively liberal and economic issues. They tend to be relatively pro-environment. They tend to be relatively pro the individual on civil liberties questions. Um, and this is the preferences of the Liberal group in the European Parliament, in the middle. But the European Parliament is a long way from the citizens, as we know. Citizens, if they vote in European Parliament elections, and 50, only 50% of us do, when they do vote in these elections, they're not expressing their preferences on anything to do with Europe. And this is the really big challenge for the European Parliament. When people vote in European Parliament elections, they treat these elections as midterm elections in the national election cycle. So not, there's no way that this legitimizes the European Parliament. We call this a second-order effect. This notion of a second-order effect was invented by um, Karl-Heinz Reif and Hermann Schmidt in 1979. These two German political scientists at Mannheim um, were studying the first European Parliament elections in 1979. And they, they called together in Mannheim political scientists from every EU member state at that time and said, come and tell us about what happened in the European Parliament elections in your member state. And Herman told me the story. He said, so we went around the room, I think, can't remember, the French 
guy stood up first and he said, well, of course, in France, France is always unique and so it's different in my country. And what happened in my country is this was nothing to do with Europe. This was all about how popular the president was and we were all expecting we've got presidential elections coming up and the socialists might win it. And so everyone was focused on that. And then the Brits stood up and said, well, we've just had Margaret Thatcher being elected in Britain. This was a big thing in Britain. So everyone's focusing on, on the national election we've just had in Britain. So these European Parliament elections were all about whether you liked or didn't like the outcome of the British election we just had. They said they went round the room and everybody told exactly the same story from every member state. They told a story that said everybody cares only about the national government election. These elections are fought in the shadow of those national government elections. So they said, they came up with the idea that there's a first order election, the election that the media and citizens and the parties focus on, and then there's everything else is a second order election, which has lower turnout and citizens use it as a protest vote against the people who won the first order election. You get exactly the same in the US. Presidential election is the first order election, mid-term congressional elections are protest votes against the president. The US president always loses mid-term congressional elections. Only two presidents since the war have won a mid-term congressional election, Truman and Clinton. Um, so this just is data from a paper of mine with Michael Marsh. We are updated for the 2009 elections that illustrates that swing against governing parties. So along the bottom here you have how many votes did a party win in the immediate preceding national election and then did their votes go up or down in the following European Parliament election? So you can see only very small parties gained votes. Big parties lost votes. And if you're in government, you lost a lot of votes. So this just shows it's got nothing to do with Europe, nothing to do with the MEPs, nothing to do with the groups in the European Parliament. In fact, you can explain almost 90% of the variance in voting in European Parliament elections with nothing about the EU in any model. Something did happen in 2009 that was interesting, that we'd never seen before, which was there was a European-wide swing. It had nothing particularly to do with Europe, but for the first time it was a European election in a different sense, in that the election was not about the European Parliament or the groups in the European Parliament or the agenda of the EU, but for the first time we had a European-wide momentum across all member states all at the same time. So there was, for the first time, we could think of these as European elections in another sense. Um, and this was a swing against the socialists, a swing from the left to the right all across Europe in the midst of the economic crisis. Um, you might think in an economic crisis, people turn to the left. Europeans don't turn to the left in an economic crisis, unlike Americans. In Europe, we turn to the right in an economic crisis. We did it in the 30s, we did it in the 70s, and we're doing it now. Um, so here you have the mainstream party families in Europe, and here parties in government in the blue, parties in, um, in opposition in the claret. And um, if you're in government, you can see you lost votes compared to your, the swing from national election to the European Parliament election. Socialists in government lost on average 10% of their votes. The others lost votes, but nothing like the socialists. If you're in opposition... Liberals, Conservatives and Christian Democratic parties won votes. If you're in opposition as a socialist, you still lost votes. So there was a swing against the socialists all across Europe, so we'd never seen that. So this suggests that there may be some element of European 
elections coming, but you can't really rely on the European Parliament generally to be a vehicle or a voice for the preferences of European citizens on some really major political issues that we're now facing. So what do we do? Um, and I think you could say, there's, you could go for kind of minimalist reform options or maximalist reform options. On the minimalist reform options, um, you could say that we will rely on these national parliaments primarily as a, as to scrutinize budgets, to scrutinize what the EU does. Uh, you could write more concrete rules into these provisions at the European level that national parliamentary committees should have votes on key issues being discussed in Brussels. So you're forcing the national constitutions to be changed to empower national parliaments to do this. You could um, enforce a greater control of the ECB and of the Commission in the European Parliament. You can even, the ECB is even talking about the possibility that they could be called before national parliaments under the arrangements for the banking union. You could argue, you could strengthen the role of the Commission, and, and because the Commission we think of as the institution which has more democratic legitimacy than the President of the Council, in that it's ratified and appointed by both the European Parliament and by the governments. You could strengthen the role of the Commission in terms of its oversight over domestic macroeconomic management and so on. And you could allow for more contestation in the choice of the Commission President, which perhaps we can get back to a bit later. A more maximalist option would say, well, that's not going to be sufficient. We're just heading towards disaster here in the EU if we just do it this way. So we need something much more drastic. We should have referendums. And we have sitting here Sarah, who's one of the world experts on EU referendums, so she might come in and challenge me on this one. I actually think if you're signing a treaty that actually commits you to set up a new macroeconomic union that has significant redistribut potentially redistributive consequences, where there's huge transfers of revenue from one member state to another, and you're signing up to these austerity measures, which you will lead inevitably to redistributive consequences internally. You can't trust governments to do it. You can't trust national parliaments to do it. You can't trust the European Parliament to legitimize it. I was sympathetic to the idea that there should have been a referendum in Greece on the austerity measures. Um, and I think, it, you know, you could say it's high risk, but actually it's a risk worth taking, I think, in that if you are otherwise, you're heading towards disaster and, and growing popular opposition to um, European integration. With the European Commission, actually, I think we should be thinking about um, a set of, of key leadership roles at the European level, fusing the office of the Commission President with the office of the European Council President. Um, we already fused the office of the Foreign Affairs Commissioner with the Foreign Affairs um, Representative in the Council. We should, could also create a European Finance Minister, so you'd have a triumvirate of the, Commission, the EU President, the Finance Minister, and the Foreign Affairs Minister, you would then have these three figures as the key leaders at the European level, people who we can blame, people we can identify with, and we should have some kind of contestation over the choice of these people that's far more transparent than it currently is now. And aside on the UK, about five minutes left. I'll do this quickly. So in the midst of all this, Cameron says wow, you guys are all doing all these things and we're completely outside this, but let's use this as an opportunity to try and get what we want for the UK. And then he's surprised when Merkel says, piss off. It's none of your business. Um, 
And that's essentially what happened with the fiscal compact. He, missed, he, he didn't realise how what he was asking for was really going to upset the other EU member states when they, when they said, this is, you know, you're already out of this. Why has this got anything to do with you? Um, how dare you come here and start saying, if you want me to support you guys doing these things, you're going to have to give me something. From his point of view, he'd say, I'm under pressure from people back home in Britain to say that we want some things repatriated from Brussels, there's rising support for UKIP, and so on. So actually, when you read his speech in that context, I was pleasantly surprised. I think what he asked for in the speech was very little. He actually made the case very strongly for the single market. He even made the case very strongly for the other member states having deeper economic and political integration to make economic and monetary union work. More than 50% of British trade is with the Eurozone. So if the Eurozone is in recession, we are in recession. It could be going into a triple-dip recession largely because of the recession in the Eurozone. So it's in Britain's interest for the Eurozone to be fixed. If, this is, if deeper economic and monetary integration is necessary for the Eurozone to fix itself, it's in Britain's interest that that happens. And he makes that case in the speech. But there are consequences of that for Britain. The consequence of that for Britain are we're a member state in the single market um, and inevitably building deeper macroeconomic integration within a subset of the EU member states is going to have spillover effects on all the member states that are not in the euro. Sweden is in a similar sort of situation to us. The the East European member states are a little different because they intend to join the euro. Sweden is probably the only other member state right now that is in the same sort of situation as the UK. And so it's legitimate for him to go to the other member states and say, I want a guarantee that deeper integration in the eurozone is not going to undermine our interests in the single market. Imagine the following. You have ECOFIN. This is the Council of Economic and Finance Ministers that meets in Brussels every month. In the morning, they meet as eurozone ministers, and in the afternoon, they meet as the finance ministers of the EU. So in the morning, they will be deciding on budgetary issues and this new fiscal union, and in the afternoon, they'll be deciding on issues relating to regulation of the single market, including regulation of financial services and the City of London. So you don't think they're going to discuss those things behind closed doors in the morning, and then in the afternoon, when they invite the Brits into the room, they'll say, we've already done a deal. And by the way, it's by majority vote, and you lose. Um, so I think it's not, incon- it's not illegitimate for him to say, we want some kind of guarantee, perhaps a protocol in the treaty or whatever. Um, and so I th- actually think, you know, you could say he's, what he's done is very high risk. He's promising a referendum. He's leading to political uncertainty and economic uncertainty. Labour could eventually be bounced into also backing a referendum. And the public ultimately could vote no. Current opinion polls say 40% to leave, 37% to stay, 23% don't know. Or you could say he doesn't really have much of a choice. He has legitimate reasons to ask for certain guarantees to protect Britain's interest. He hasn't set out a shopping list of demands. I think it's pretty easy for the other member states to give him what he wants, for him to come home and say to the public, I've renegotiated the terms of our relationship with the rest of the EU. No one in Britain is going to really know what that means. (laughs) And then there'll be a referendum campaign for which the Conservatives, Labour, the Lib Dems, SNP and everybody to the left of Genghis Khan will be in favour of Britain staying in the EU. Um, If you don't believe me, 
this is a public opinion data on, from Denmark and the UK. Eurobarometer data every six months from 1973 to the present. Do you think your country's membership of the EU is a good thing? UK and Denmark followed exactly the same trajectory until the early 1990s. Huge enthusiasm for European integration in the early 1990s, in the late 80s, with a build-up to the creation of the single market. Um, applications to EU studies programs at the LSE follow the same trajectory. Um, after this peak in the early 90s, public support in the UK collapsed and has been hovering around 30% ever since. Are you in favour of your country's membership of the EU? 30%. Denmark, it's gone up. Why? How did this happen? Well, this is the dates of the referendums. That's the referendum in the UK, down there. We had it in 1975. After the referendum, attitudes towards the EU jumped 15% in the UK. Here's the referendums in Denmark. They've had a lot more than we have. The first one here in the Single European Act a jump of about 10 percentage points after the referendum. Two referendums on Maastricht, not quite such a good story, but you can see after the second referendum, you get an uptick of about 3 or 4%. And repeated referendums. Referendums are devices that force public debate, that force you to come to terms and to educate the public about what actually is going on, what is really happening. You can argue that, yes, referendums are very crude, and yes, referendums are fought on, the, on the, you know, the popularity of the government of the day. There's a second-order effect in referendums and so on. However, as a result of referendums, you can argue that Denmark and the Danish public have come to terms with their status within the EU. When they started, they were as Eurosceptic as the Brits, with exactly the same concerns as the Brits, and terrified the Germans were going to buy up all their nice property on the North Sea. And now they are very happy with the EU. Right, Sarah? Finish off with four scenarios. Anyone know who that is? <laughs> Must be some historians in the room. Nope. No, that's what he said. No, it's Joseph II. Austria, Austro-Hungarian emperor. None of you have watched uh, you know, um, Amadeus? That's the, he's the guy. He was an enlightened despot. That's Van Rompuy. <laughs> the EU will carry on as a, as a form of enlightened despotism, as a kind of supersized Holy Roman Empire, if you like. Um, the EU will carry on kind of muddling through with this sort of intergovernmental method of decision-making where member states' leaders go off to Brussels behind closed doors in smoke-filled rooms. They come to a deal and they come home and they railroad these deals through their weak national parliaments with their backbenchers throwing paper aeroplanes. Um, there was a little cabal, actually not through the formal rules that really runs things, which these days is Merkel, Hollande, the Van Rompuy. You get ad hoc side payments to buy off particular interests who shout loud enough. There's no European electoral arena. The European Parliament is too weak. There's growing frustration amongst the losers of these outcomes, whether you're a Finnish taxpayer or Greek unemployed under 35. And there's just growing malaise across Europe. 
Well, but they can carry on quite a long way with this form of enlightened despotism. Probability of this being where we are still in 10 years' time, 50%. Joe, that is. Hamilton, excellent. That's Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton was the architect of fiscal union in the United States. So this was, if we really did get to that stage three of this economic and monetary union process, as outlined by Van Rompuy, we'd have an EU treasury with three to five percent of GDP. A colleague here, Charlie Goodhart's, proposed the same sort of thing. He actually proposed it ten years ago. Um, you'd have, the EU would have its own new tax source that would be paid into this pot. So the EU would be much more dynamic in terms of having a set of resources it could use to overcome economic crisis. You would have Eurozone bonds. Barroso has already set that plan in motion. And you would have the possibility that through these Eurozone bonds, the EU itself could actually directly purchase government bonds, which is what Hamilton did in the US. In the long run, you might say this is cheaper than the the costs of us having to do this muddling through in the short run. But in the long run, this would require much more direct political legitimation. So if this actually happened without there being democratic politics, it would be hugely undemocratic. Crisis or collapse. There's Merkel and Sarkozy trying to save the euro, and that's a demonstration in Greece, and that's you know, a flag, an EU flag with a swastika in it. This is how it looks from Greece. If you're unemployed in Greece, the Germans are imposing austerity on us again. Um, Revolts and electoral protests against the austerity union that's being imposed. Uh, Collapse of the mainstream political parties in Greece, which we've seen. It was a wafer-thin election, the last election in Greece. It could well have been a much more anti-EU outcome with a government that chooses to leave the euro. They're totally entitled to do that. A domino effect that then leads to the fact that Ireland or Portugal or Spain is next. Heaven knows. Growing opposition to bailouts in Germany, Finland, and the Netherlands. Again, it was a very tight Dutch election. We could have had a completely different outcome where the Netherlands then does not ratify the European stability mechanism. Um, Growing public opposition to the EU in other EU member states, for example, in the UK. We get a referendum in the UK that says that we vote to leave the EU. The emergence of a kind of two-tier Europe with just a few member states left in the core that salvage the single market and salvage the euro. And ten years from now, we look back and and we say, wow, we are now living in a very different world. I actually think this is much... I updated these slides from a talk uh, I gave about six months ago. I had that at 20%. Now it's down to 10 would be my current betting. Um, I think, actually, the EU has successfully muddled through pretty well. And this is looking much less likely than it looked just three or four or six months ago. And then here's my kind of romantic scenario. (laughs) As the European European Parliament chamber looks like the uh, Intergalactic Council in Star Wars, it's great. There's a ballot box. We have a European Commission, new European Commission being chosen in 2014. All the major political parties in Europe are committed to having rival candidates for the Commission presidency. The EPP are already talking about um, Tusk, the current Polish Prime Minister, as the candidate for the EPP. The Socialists are also talking about someone as a potential candidate. Uh, Schultz 
likes to think he's going to be the candidate. He's the leader of the socialists in the European... He's the president of the European Parliament now, German Social Democrat. Um, it's not that this would change anything. It's not that they would be directly elected. But if we did have rival candidates for the Commission president, what do you think will happen? They will, be, uh, they will have to write a, a statement about what they want the EU to do for the next five years. These will be talked about as manifestos. They will be reported on in the national press. There will be a live TV debate in the European Parliament, or several, streamed live, probably in English, um, with the European Parliament's simultaneous translation services that are remarkable. Um, the national newspapers would have kind of page spreads, who these people are, what they want to do, who are they. It's not that suddenly we would have European democracy, but suddenly we would have a European element to European Parliament election campaign. Suddenly we would have voters, citizens, newspapers, uh, policymakers, politicians, bloggers, asking, what are these people going to do? Who are you going to vote for? Who am I going to vote for? And suddenly the elections will start to take on a character different from the character they currently have now. Other developments, the European Council, the Council of Ministers is gradually becoming more transparent via initiatives like Vote Watch, where we're putting all the voting records of the Council online, and, and the media are starting to actually track voting records amongst the governments, which they've never done before. We also have the Citizens' Initiative, which is starting to uh, get some teeth. So the Citizens' Initiative was put in the EU treaties as um, the possibility of referendums, European-wide Referendum, so you'd have to gather, how many signatures is it? A million signatures in nine member states. Um, when they wrote this in the treaty, in the Lisbon Treaty, they thought this is impossible, but now with Facebook and Twitter, any well-organized NGO could do this over a wet weekend in February. So, I mean, it's, it's not hard to get a million signatures. You get a million signatures across Europe, and suddenly... Citizens can ask the EU to do something or not do something. The Commission has to make the decision, but with a, connect this to a battle for the Commission president, and you, suddenly there will be debates. Are you going to take action on this citizens' initiative that's got five million signatures? Suddenly we're getting a different um, type of EU. 20%, unfortunately. In sum, um, we've gone on far too long. The emerging macroeconomic union in Europe will have major redistributional consequences, already having major redistributional consequences. We need to find some way to legitimise these consequences, to secure what political scientists like to call loser's consent. Within-state outcomes could be legitimised domestically via national elections, parliaments or referendums. Between-state redistribution cannot be um, legitimized that way. There needs to be some sort of European level legitimation. Um, I would hope that we will start putting more pressure on the EU uh, governments and parties and political elites to start talking more seriously about how they will democratize the emerging macroeconomic union in Europe. Is it likely to happen? No, but that won't stop me hoping it does. Thank you. Simon, you're clearly not spending enough time as head of the government department, because that was a uh, fantastic talk. Now, we've got about 35 minutes for questions. I'll take them in groups of three. People could identify themselves and wait for the microphone. That would be great. Gentleman just there. Professor of Economics. 
I, I don't know what you mean uh, as, a, as an economist, what you mean by a macroeconomic union. I really concept that we don't have in economics, by the way. Maybe it's a political science you can explain that. And secondly, you say that what's being built in um, Europe now, or EU now, is a macro union on the US 1930s model. I mean, what are you talking about? This is Um, okay. Uh, I'll take three questions. So. <laughs> What's that? Uh, that, uh, that? Down here, please. Yeah, thanks, Simon. Um, I thought there was a little bit so of a... Sorry, could you introduce yourself? Oh, sorry. Um, my name is Mareike Kleiner. Kleiner. I'm a lecturer in the European Institute. Um, I thought there could, could you, the was... Microphones are sorry, no, she's got it. It's on. Just speak a bit louder. It is on? Yeah, okay. So, uh, I yell, nonetheless. Um, I thought there was a little bit of a, of a paradox in your talk in that you showed that national parliaments don't really, uh, are actually really weak, so apparently democracy doesn't really work at the national level, so why should we expect it to work then at the European level? And another thing that you didn't mention, you, your justification for the need of, uh, of democracy was stability, right? You, you need to legitimize that somebody is actually put in the loser position for a while. But what you didn't mention is uh, the capacity of voters to actually make an informed decision. So is that perhaps a difference between the European level and the national level? And finally, it's uh, very easy to criticize uh, uh, actually a, a positive reform proposal in the current crisis because I don't really know myself what I would propose. But I'd suggest why not just uh, try to reform domestic institutions instead of trying to fix the European institutions instead. I'll take one more question. Can I ask uh, questioners just to stand just to face the audience? I think there's a bit of a problem with acoustics in the room. The gentleman over there. Hi, Will Brett. Um, so I just, what's your first name? My name is Will. Will. I just wondered if there's a uh, block... Um, blocking what you're suggesting to do with participation and disillusionment because no matter what you do, what you suggest institutionally uh, referendums direct elections all sorts of different types of election on the national or european level if people don't participate then any legitimacy is only kind of theoretical and i just yeah I'm, and it's, so, so so what do you need to do to address that and also who addresses that is it national politicians who address that or is it european politicians okay let's go in reverse order will um, most of the evidence on participation shows that um, voters are much more willing to participate if the outcome of an election is likely to matter. So, if, And there's two senses of that. One is it's a tight election. So the outcome, turning up and voting can actually make a difference. And two is if the choices are significant. So who wins will make a difference. So um, it's not clear, and, and so part of the reason nobody bothers showing up in European Parliament elections is most voters understand it doesn't matter. This doesn't really has a, influence anything. At the, in fact, it's rational for voters to use them to try and influence domestic politics. So it's not illogical for us to, to, to not treat them as European issues. Um, and it's not true. Actually, turnout in referendums, European referendums, has been pretty high in, in recent years. And so I'm, I'm not generally of the view that there's this sort of widespread disillusionment. In fact, we had very high and highly contested elections in the Netherlands and Greece recently, and European issues as part of those elections, far more than I expected them to be. So, so you know, I, I think 
Part of the disillusionment might be to do with the fact that we have austerity, that there's redistributional consequences as a result of that austerity, and that's leading to different conflicts in society and young people being marginalised. But I'm not sure you can necessarily say that's people being turned off from politics. Um, Marika, um, I, I don't particularly like national parliaments. I've got nothing against national democracy. I think national democracy works pretty well. I think national parliaments don't. There's a difference. Um, I think, you know, elections work pretty well in a domestic arena for sanctioning who gets to form the executive and who gets to govern and us being able to observe what they do and reward or punish them for what they do. Um, and so, you know, and would I like there to be more reforms that strengthen the teeth of national parliaments in terms of their scrutiny over what governments are doing? Yes. And I think what's interesting in the UK is as soon as we move from single-party majority government to a coalition government, one of the first things the coalition government did was introduce new rules of procedure for the House of Commons, whereas the Liberals, the minority, the small party in the coalition, insisted on these things, knowing that this could be their only chance because they're going to be in opposition sitting in the Parliament in future, so we'd better get these rules changed now. And that's the dynamic that happens in a lot of places. So it's not that I, I, I'm sceptical about national democracy, I'm just sceptical about national parliaments as a vehicle through which we can scrutinise. And it's interesting, you know, Denmark is a, quite interesting in that the Denmark is one of the few places where the national parliament really does have teeth because of the, the history of minority government and coalition government in Denmark. Um, so, so it's not quite the analogy of the UK and Denmark. There's other institutional, key institutional differences between the two states. Um, would I reform democratic institutions? Well, yeah, I don't know. Um, I think... The economic historians will say, and people like Doug North or, or um, some other historians of, of U.S. government, um, will say that, um, describe the development of the U.S. as moving from a regulatory state to a welfare state. A regulatory state was formed in the... I know you wouldn't, but I would. Okay. So, um, 1880s, 1890s, um, U.S. federal government is being built, um, regulation of the market through the Interstate Commerce Clause... Yes, but you don't get fed the federal government having major... The Federal Reserve Board was set up much earlier, in the 60s, 1860s. But, I mean, the... the what changes the economic policy took place in the 19th century? Macro policy. Uh, you don't think that universal uh, pensions, Macro. universal... Well, this is, you know, large federal taxes, federal public Macro. spending. Fiscal okay, fiscal policy. This is fiscal policy. This is fiscal policy. This is fiscal union that's being built. So, so just let's reply. I'll give you a chance to come back. So that's the standard interpretation of this in the, in, in the economic history literature that I know is, is the shift from what was largely a, a regulatory policies from, by the federal government to now fiscal policies by the taxing and spending and the battle between Roosevelt and the New Dealers on one side and Hoover on the other side was about the fiscal capacity of the federal government and whether you wanted to give the federal government that fiscal capacity. And it's, what's going on right now is whether or not, it's not that the EU would have that kind of fiscal capacity, but that the EU institutions will take on powers that will influence how taxes are raised and how taxes are spent, which they currently don't have. So in moving from a situation where the choices we make as citizens over raising and spending taxes is purely at the domestic level to a system where, within the Eurozone, the constraints and the decisions about these issues are largely being made in Brussels. So, so it's the first step towards a more fiscal integration within Europe. Oh, 
Okay, we'll take another round of questions. Um, just a gentleman here. Thank you. R Richard Bronk. Um, Could you stand up just because uh, I think there are people that sometimes can't hear behind. Richard Bronk, Euro European Institute. Um, I very much liked your talk, Simon, and you've um, convinced me more on referenda than anyone else has succeeded in doing so far. The question I wanted to ask, though, was about central banks and, um, and uh, being uh, um, insulated from democratic accountability because they only deal with efficiency outcomes, preto efficient outcomes. It seems to me that a lot of what central banks are doing now is extremely redistributive. Um, and it may indeed be, I would argue, that it's only because they're insulated from democracy that they're able to do the redistribution that they're doing at the moment. For example, having very low interest rates um, is essentially a redistribution from creditors to, to, to debtors and so on. And if the old, who are predominantly those who vote in UK and US elections, were voting on this, it might well not be the policy um, that the central banks could pursue. So just take a few questions and then the gentleman right over there. Uh, John Strafford. Um, <clears throat> what a miserable, depressing picture of democracy in the future have you painted for us tonight? You throw the people the odd referendum. You talk about a consultation if there are a million citizens that want it, but of course it's a consultation so they don't have to take any action. They can ignore it if they want. Why haven't you talked about reforming the European Parliament so it's a meaningful body where democracy really works, where we have equal value votes rather than Luxembourg having a vote worth ten times more than the UK's vote? where we don't have closed list systems so that the people vote for an individual and can get rid of an individual rather than voting for a party, where nine countries in Europe vote for closed list systems, where the political parties themselves are undemocratic. Uh, why don't you really put forward a vision of a democracy that people could uh, try and achieve and go for rather than this miserable, rotten, little picture that you've painted for us tonight. Thank you. That's, that's enough questions for that one. Okay, if you want to answer... I'll answer that one. I mean, I've, I've written at length and given evidence in the European Parliament and the House of Commons at length arguing for open lists for the European Parliament elections. Um, and I'm sure, I, you know, I, I'm very happy to add that in. I think all the evidence suggests that having open lists um, in European Parliament elections has significantly increases information provided to citizens and significantly increases connection between candidates and incentives for candidates to campaign directly to voters. Um, and it's British political parties and German political parties and French political parties and Spanish political parties that are resisting that. So, you know, I'm absolutely in favour of, of open lists. Would in you terms of digressive proportionality? In terms of a, a proportion, apportionment of seats in the European Parliament, I actually think the model for the European Parliament is not inconsistent with most other models of representation in very large-scale, multi-ethnic, multinational politics. There's not equal... You know, the US is different where you have one state, two votes in the Senate, and citizens represented clearly in the other chamber. 
In most multinational, large-scale democracies, you have a mix of states and citizens represented in each chamber. That's the situation in Germany, that's the situation in Brazil, that's the situation in India, that's even the situation in the UK, where you have over-representation of Scots and Welsh and under-representation of English as a result of the deal that was done in the Act of Union. So it's not, it's not unreasonable that when you design democracies where you're, bringing to, where you're having to reconcile the interests of citizens with the, with the interests of states or, or ethnic groups um, you need, or national groups, that you need to balance these things. So it's not unreasonable that, that this should be the, the representation of the European Parliament. Otherwise, you would say, the way to fix it would be to say, in the European Parliament... We have one citizen, one vote, equal representation. But in the council, you'd have to have one state, one vote. And so Britain's vote would be equal to the vote of Luxembourg. So we have weighted votes by state in the council, and we have a, a similar balance of states and votes in the parliament. And so that's how we balance those two things. Could the question um, about Richard Brom. Yeah, I find that a really hard question to answer, Richard. Um, that's probably the hardest one I've had so far because um, my own view would be we should separate. I actually like the model we have in the UK. I actually like the model where we've separated out the clear political decision about the setting of the interest rate to then the setting of the inflation target from the implementation decision by a central bank. Um, we used to think that that wouldn't be possible because if you did that, you'd have the politicians who have an incentive then to pump up the economy. But by separating out the setting of the inflation target to the implementation of that target, it makes it much more transparent what the politicians are doing. So can you imagine if a politician wants to pump up the economy before an election, they have to go to the central bank and say, we set you an inflation target of 5% this year. And it's become so transparent that everybody, the media and the opposition, would say, that's really dangerous, you, you're crazy which effectively is what used to happen because they used to just do that behind the scenes and just cut interest rates, which is the same thing. So by separating out the setting of the inflation rate from the implementation of it, I think actually you are then passing the more clearly redistributive decision to the politician and the more clearly efficient decision to the central bank. If we could mimic that at the European level, I would like to have ECOFIN setting inflation targets by QMV or something for the European Central Bank and the European Central Bank implementing it. Rather than saying, you European Central Bank, you interpret whatever we mean by price stability, to which they then say between 0 and 2% as an asymmetric target, and then they implement it. So that's my kind of compromise between the two ideas. Okay, we've got a question down here uh, first. Vato Shaker from the European Institute. Um, Simon, I think you have almost told us why the EU at the moment doesn't think it needs all that maximalist democracy that you uh, give us. Because you, you justify democracy. Whenever you do redistribution, you need democracy. But you have actually told us exactly the things that they have done that are new haven't you know, gone the, over the Rubicon towards redistribution. The new roles of the ECB has nothing to do, not more to do with redistribution than monetary policy always has, because interest rates do changes do redistribute between debtors and creditors. The constraints on debtors, there you say that's an internal redistribution from young to the old in debtor countries. Well, I'm not so sure, because it's actually done in favor of the young not being totally you know, ripped off by all the, um, the, the debt that we accumulate. 
Um, so the distributive, redistributive effects of this are very unclear. And then finally, and on that, I really would like you not to repeat that the liquidity funds are a short-term redistribution from creditors to, to debtors. What the creditor countries, actually everybody, the 26 who guarantee a program, do is guarantee a bond issue. There is not even a loan from the Treasury to anybody. Only if the thing goes wrong, but the public that the, sofa, the creditors have so far said, we will not take a haircut. So we had no redistribution, and one shouldn't say that. That's just the bill side and so on. We'll repeat that. It is exactly that they have created in that way not to have redistribution. So if you want a justification for your democratization of the EU, I think you need to think about other justification like we have to got them stabilize this union, and that needs new policy instruments that so far we don't have, and it is a budgetary taboo. Okay. The gentleman here, and then I'll take the question over there. Just the gentleman here in the camel jacket. If you could stand, sir, please, and identify us. Hi. Hi. Uh, my name is Paul. I'm a student here. Paul. Uh, Paul, yeah. And uh, I was wondering about uh, whether, uh, well, about democratization, what kind of system would you think would be implemented? Would it, well, is more probably uh, susceptible to be implemented uh, and more feasible? feasible. Would it be uh, international uh, voting? And in that case, would, um, would uh, the... Uh, would the challenges in uh, voting be between North and South uh, at, the, at Parliament? Or would it stay uh, in a more uh, national uh, voting uh, concept? And also, I don't know if it's uh, really part of uh, your, your area, but uh, do you have any idea about the future of labor uh, mobility in the, in the Union? All right. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. And then just behind you, the gentleman... In the blue, blue fleece, I think. Yeah, hi. Uh, my name is Axel Fagner. I'm a student at the European Institute here at the LSE. And I just wanted to hear you talk a bit more about contestation of European uh, Commission presidency or, or uh, maybe even an election. Because, as you said, pre-low probability, 20%, right, even for contesta contestation. And the arguments I've heard so far are, uh, one, uh, because of the really fragile compromises between council members, you don't want politicization because then you would get even less done in the EU. Uh, the other argument is all the national leaders are prima donnas, right? They don't want to be upstaged by a commission president. What are those viable arguments or what other reasons could there be for this obviously really sensible change uh, not to happen? Okay, the, 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 there's, two, there's two arguments against it. One, one that I think are very strong legitimate arguments. One, one is by my, um, my PhD supervisor who argued with me tooth and nail for three years about this, which was Jan Domenico Maioni. Um, and uh, he said, Simon, you just don't understand the EU. Um, and the commission is not a political body. The commission is a regulatory body. It's an independent institution. We don't want to politicize it. If we politicize it and have a contest about it, it, it will become a political body and then we'll we will damage or roll back all of the gains we've made so far. And I would say, Nino, that's because you're Italian and you don't like politicians, so you want to isolate everything from politicians. <laughs> to which you would say, yeah, maybe there's some truth to that. But, um, 
But I think that, that so that's a real major thing. So, so I think that, interestingly, right now there's a kind of schism down the middle of the people I talk to in the commission between people who say, "No, no, 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 we're a regulatory body. We need to be an independent, credible regulator for when we take governments to court, for example, or for when we're vetoing mergers, or for when we're initiating legislation." And there's other people who say, no, no, actually, we're making really pretty political decisions when we initiate legislation. Maybe not on these other issues, and we should take these issues out of the Commission and give them to a European Competition Authority, or maybe a European, a new re- regulatory body that monitors the implementation of the single market, and, and make the Commission more of a, a body that, like a national executive body, that's thinking strategically about the long-term interests. For example, for years, the EU Commission has said rhetorically that they want to liberalise labour markets in Europe. They've never done anything about that. Um, they have the provisions within the treaty to do it. And um, you could say to them, whether you like it or not, if that's really what you want to do and you think that's what should be done, why not propose a directive that liberalises hiring and firing rules for companies under 100 employees? If you can regulate labour markets through the treaties, why can't you deregulate labour markets through the treaties? So... so They haven't done it because that's a hugely political step. They don't have sufficient political mandate to do something like that. Um, So if that's what they really think needs to be done to get the single market working and and to get young people back into jobs, um, you would need a political mandate. So so actually I think the the Commission wants to separate out politics from the more implementation regulatory role. The other argument is more of a description or an explanation about why it's not happened, which is if you do politicise the Commission... You weaken the power of the big governments. Big governments don't want it. The big governments want, don't want to have a, a powerful pig figurehead who tries to set the medium-term agenda against them. De law is the exception that proves the rule. De law is the only powerful commission president. He was a mistake. Um, in fact, um, Margaret Thatcher vetoed Claude Chesson because Claude Chesson was too much of a pro-European lefty federalist and thought Delors was her man because Delors was Mitterrand's finance minister. Only then did he reveal his true preferences. Ever since then, they've got, well, we're not doing that again. We're going to have Santerre and Prodi and Barroso. <laughs> so, so, you know, he's the exception that proves the general rule. That, and I remember being in the European Parliament when they chose Barros, when they chose Santerre and the debate in the Parliament, and it was uh, Bernard Tapie, a French socialist uh, MEP, and he stood up and he said, uh, if we vote for this guy, we won't be electing a commission president, we'll be electing a secretary for the government. That's what the governments want. They want a secretary. They don't want a commission president. Um, so in terms of the politics, what would happen if we had this battle? I mean, we used to think that, that people used to say that you can't possibly, people will never identify with politicians from other member states. You can't possibly do that. In the Federalist Papers, I think it's one of the papers by Madison, he writes in defense of the Electoral College for the U.S. president and why he didn't want direct election for the U.S. president. He writes, if we had a direct election, it wouldn't be an election for a president. It would be a beauty contest between each state's favorite son. Uh, and in a sense, you know, that you'd say if we had a, pres- a direct election for the commission, that would be what would happen. Um, and you, people would not, Brits couldn't vote for a French guy for the Commission President, or Germans couldn't vote for a Spanish, and so on. And I, I like to say that, you know, 15 years ago, they used to say that people would never support Man United and Arsenal because they had too many foreign players in them. 
you know. My son's got pictures of all the West Ham players on his wall. He doesn't care where they come from. So, I mean, this is kind of the idea that we can't identify with or, or be part of a, 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 or think that we have an allegiance to something because it's not from our country. I think it's just completely wrong in a modern globalised world with mass communications and, and, and us being able to do these things. The reason I wouldn't want direct election, however, is I don't think we're ready for it, and I don't think... Um, I think you would worry... I would worry in the same way Madison worries about something different, which is that what do you do with the fact that you would get political majorities in some of the big member states in favour? What do the small member states do? It's no coincidence that Germany would be the first member state to be in favour of a direct election of the Commission president. They're the most popular state in Europe. Um, so I actually would like a gradual opening up, a contest that's not a direct election contest, that's just rival candidates that allows us, maybe in time we might demand a more direct election for a commission president. And Valtraud, yeah, that's a fair cop. Um, I, I, I do see... I think you're right about the, the... It's not direct redistributional consequences of the ESM yet. Um, I think there are redistributional consequences of these austerity measures that have helped internally within states. Um, and I think when the issue, for example, becomes an issue in the Dutch uh, elections, it's not that it's the sort of built sighting take. It's the idea that you're signing up to a commitment. You're signing up to a commitment that's an uncertain commitment. That, so you're, you're binding your hands about not being able to make these decisions in the future if it does become. You're signing up to a promise. You're signing up to a promise that this could have major redistributive consequences. But you're right to criticise on the grounds that we haven't actually yet seen these major uh, redistributive consequences. If we did... If we do move to the second or the third stage of the plan that Van Rompuy has set up, then we really will get there. And I do agree with you that this might be what is needed. And if this is needed, then there will need to be more clearer political uh, legitimacy for these sorts of outcomes. It's a good criticism. Okay, we've got time, I think, for one more round of questions. Um, there was, well, two questions there, both next to each other. So we'll take them together. If you could... Oh. Please start. Hi, Jonathan White from the Hi, European John. Institute. Um, just wanted to follow up the point about uh, tying the argument to redistributive consequences. I, I think I agree with you that uh, the EU does plenty of redistributive things, and that may be one reason to uh, politicise it. Although, at the same time, that got me daydreaming. Let's imagine that it is perfectly non-redistributive. Uh, uh, would that be the reason uh, not to democratise it? Well, that might be exactly the reason to democratise it, because it is entirely uh, non-redistributive. Um, it doesn't seem to me clear that one should hang the argument for politicisation on this question of the redistributive consequences. Something which uh, reproduces things as they stand uh, may be equally in need of uh, some type of... Uh, Underpinning, unless one assumes that uh, this is a spontaneous order and that the status quo has a kind of natural benefit of the doubt. It's not entirely clear that that is the case. So um, I, I wonder whether one probably ultimately needs to hang the argument on what uh, the consequences are for conceptions of justice which exist in society. Either certain policies uh, are felt to be serving a conception of justice, others will think that they are uh, doing quite the opposite. Um, but whether it's about redistribution, uh, I'm, I'm not so sure, because even if there was zero redistribution, 
that sounds to me like exactly the reason to, to make it a little bit more politicised. And the lady next door. Hi, my name is Amy. Um, I wanted to know about what your opinions were on um, how enlargement plays into democratization because you have countries um, this year with Croatia joining, but also countries um, hoping to join the Eurozone itself, so EU member states wanting to become part of the Euro. Um, I just wanted to know what your thoughts were on how that could potentially complicate matters. Okay, and finally, uh, Sarah. Uh, Sarah Hobel, the European Institute. Uh, thanks for an excellent talk. I just wanted to, no one mentioned anything about the British case. So um, you very conveniently chose, when you gave your argument for referendums, uh, two cases. If you plotted Ireland and Switzerland, you would have seen a rather uh, different picture. Um, so referendums, evidence has shown that, yes, referendums in Europe do have the effect you suggest, but not necessarily no votes. Um, and um, so I'll give you a slightly different scenario than the one you gave for Britain. So what will happen now is that uh, Ed Miliband might feel forced to also promise a referendum, and the Tories will indeed not win. So it will be a Labour government uh, promising a referendum and holding a referendum. The Tories will campaign against this. With a new leader. With a new, more Eurosceptic leader. Now, that's not an entirely unlikely scenario. In that case, you might, you know, your high-risk strategy... I mean, and that's indeed what it is, might not pay off in slightly the sort of enlightening way that everyone, you know, the Brits, you'll see a huge jump in them loving Europe, but in fact that Britain leaves the EU. Um, so just this idea that having referendums is a sort of vehicle for the elites to unite and enlighten the masses, I mean, that's not always how it's turned out. I mean, you know plenty of cases... Uh, even with the very pro-European Irish, where in fact the sort of second-order effect that you describe very eloquently for European Parliament elections have also concerned, and you could see a sort of similar thing in Britain. Okay, Sarah, sorry for interrupting just then. I think, in addition to asking or answering all these questions, Simon, I think there was a question also about labour movement. I, I just uh, noted that down, uh, that I uh, had could answer that as well. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it was Bertie O'Hearn was asked live the last days before the second referendum on the Nice Treaty what would happen if they voted no again. He said, ah, we just keep asking until they say yes. So, yeah, that, you know, how, how democratic really are referendums in that case. Yeah, I mean, yeah. In general, I, I, I get frustrated with people who don't have faith in us as citizens. And, and, I, and I, don't, I don't like... And I think all across advanced democracies, we have um, a political elite which is probably far less globalized um, than the actual society in which they live, particularly in Europe. So we have politicians who start at the age of 13, 14 um, in being politicians and spend their life doing politics, um, don't do anything else. They don't actually travel. They don't live in other countries. They don't actually do anything outside politics. And they end up running countries. The rest of us um, are involved in most sectors of the modern economy in hope globalized sectors, whether it's financial services or academia or media or, or business or law or um, design or art or fashion or any of the other cultural industries that Britain is major export in. Um, and so why should we trust our politicians to be making these kind of major constitutional decisions on our behalf? I don't. 
So, so, so I am a believer that, that, and also, you know, in terms of the difference in the educational attainment levels of our political elites sitting in parliaments and the general public is now much, much smaller than it ever has been in modern democratic history. In fact, most, the, the, the proportion of MPs sitting in most parliaments with advanced degrees is declining. Because if having an advanced degree as a politician is a risk, because you better just leave after your undergraduate degree and go straight into politics. Otherwise, you're done. Whereas advanced degrees in society are rising rapidly. So I think there's a growing gap, and this might relate to this question over here about, about politicians and disillusionment amongst the public. So I don't necessarily trust politicians to make these types of decisions um, on their own. And I, I, am, I, am, I do believe that we as citizens should be, have a right to make these really big constitutional questions ourselves. Um, yes, it's risky. Uh, but we as citizens should have to bear the costs of those risks um, if things go wrong. Enlargement, yeah. I mean, um, the interesting thing is most of these new member states still have the idea that they want to join the euro. So um, where was Amy who asked me that question? Um, who, who want to join the euro. Um, and this has come as a bit of a surprise, I think, to Brits, particularly centre-right Brits, because they thought that most of these new member states wouldn't want to join the euro, particularly when they saw the, the crisis in the euro, and they certainly wouldn't want to sign up to the fiscal compact, and they certainly wouldn't want to sign up to the austerity uh, union package deal that comes, or, or the monitoring of national fiscal policies, but they do. And I think the reason they do is they see this as not an austerity union, but as a stability union. They see this as something that's guaranteeing the long-term macroeconomic and political stability of their economies and locking them into a European integration project. Um, And so I think there will carry on being demand from the new member states. I can see 10 years from now only one or two member states of the EU not in the euro probably Britain and probably Sweden, and maybe the Czech Republic, but who knows what's happening in the Czech Republic. That can change quite, quite, quite quickly. This relates to the free movement of labor question. This, when we have a downturn um, in the economy, immigration always becomes an issue, um, and, and it's no coincidence that it's becoming an issue. One thing that is remarkable, though, about the free movement of labor that has happened with the enlargement of the EU to the new member states is the, is the very minor effect it has actually had on unemployment in most states. Most of the unemployment is a structural unemployment um, or an unemployment among a kind of indigenous population. And these are new jobs being created. So in that period in Britain in the 2000s where we had an influx of between 500,000 and a million, depending on who you believe, from Poland, Lithuania and other member states. By the way, my wife uh, works on migration, runs a migration think tank. And she likes to say that the data shows that Polls into the UK as a percentage of British population was the largest single immigration group into the UK since the Huguenots. So, you know, it will fundamentally change British society. Um, What is remarkable is how little of an effect it has really had in terms of the economy. Most of the economy in the, in the south of England, the southeast of England, has, has actually created jobs for these new immigrants from the new member states. So I think it's inevitable that in an economic downturn this becomes an issue. But I think with an economic upturn, if it eventually comes, I think this issue will largely go away because it wasn't an issue while the economy was booming and we had it wasn't particularly an issue when we had the Spanish and the Portuguese coming, coming into Britain. Um, who have we got left? Jonathan. Yeah. 
There's many ways we can think about or justify democracy. Um, this is only one very narrow uh, justification about why you would want, in a very kind of functionalist way. And I, and I can think about it, and this is more of a way of defining it when thinking about something particularly like the European Union. You would build a, a, a political community that's largely built by elites, and at what point do you democratize? And I think if you build a political union by elites, you would then want to democratize at the point where there are inevitably redistributive consequences of what you do. And that's the kind of logic that follows, the logical argument. But I can see plenty of other reasons why you might want to democratize within a polity to provide people with more of a choice and to sanction and legitimize those kind of choices. We wouldn't have had the welfare states of Europe without democracy. You know, part of the, you cannot build welfare states unless you have the democracy that sanctions those kinds of redistributive outcomes. So in that sense, I agree with you. And the fact that it was democracy and a big win for Labour in 1945 that allowed the Labour Party in 1945 to actually push through a range of reforms because of a democratic mandate from the people. So the people who lost from that, the established British elites... They actually came up with a convention in the House of Lords to accept it. The convention in the House of Lords was the Salisbury-Addison Convention that said, well, we as the House of Lords would like to block all of these things Labour wants to do because they're going to be redistributing wealth, but we have a convention we've established now that if the public have voted for it then in a ref- in a, and it's set out in a manifesto, the House of Lords won't block it. So that's a recognition of actually a popular will of a democratic majority of the public for a redistributive outcome. And they, they, they recognise that that is more legitimate than the so-called sovereignty of the, of the parliament. So in that sense, I agree with you that, that, that there's other reasons why you might want to democratise to achieve these redistributive outcomes. But I think that would be more high risk um, to do it that way round in this kind of polity in Europe where we are right now. Simon, thank you very much. You can tell by the, some of the animated questions, uh, the very interesting questions, how uh, you, captured, uh, uh, you captured our attentions and uh, got us going. So that was absolutely fantastic. Thank you very much for your wide-ranging answers as well. I hope you will all join me in... Uh...